Good morning. If you have your copy of God's Word, why don't you open with me to Isaiah chapter 40. As we have been reading through the book of Isaiah uh, this month in our growth group, uh, we, we saw through the, the first 35 chapters uh, that there was a focus upon uh, the faithless servant of God. Uh, that would be the, the nation of Israel. Uh, they had been unfaithful uh, to all that God had commanded them uh, to be and how they were commanded to, to worship Him. And so there was a whole lot of judgment uh, to be coming upon Israel and the nations in the first 35 chapters of the book of Isaiah. And then we got to chapters 36 to 39, which you, you may say would, would be about the frightened servant uh, of God, uh, King Hezekiah. Uh, and I would say uh, he was uh, frightened with, with good reason, right? When, uh, when 185,000 Assyrian troops come knocking on your walls, uh, that is concerning. Uh, that is a reason for fright, uh, especially when that same uh, Assyrian Empire uh, had conquered uh, the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, and now they were coming for you as the king of Judah uh, and the, the leader in the capital of Jerusalem. So, so Hezekiah was frightened with good reason, uh, but his fright uh, was what prompted him to pray. Uh, and the Lord was able to, to deliver uh, Hezekiah and Jerusalem from uh, and then we come to uh, Isaiah chapter 40, uh, the beginning of this third and final portion in the book of Isaiah. Uh, and uh, th- these last 27 chapters in the book are all about comfort. And, and, and the focus in these chapters is upon the, the faithful servant of God uh, who was going to, to be sent to rescue Israel and the nations. If you look with me there in Isaiah chapter 40. Love the way this portion begins. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and that her iniquity is pardoned. That she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And those verses probably sound familiar because those are the words spoken by John the Baptist. The, the forerunner to Christ. So immediately what you have at the, uh, this last portion of Isaiah is a message of comfort. And that comfort is going to come through a person. Uh, the person whom John the Baptist announced. Uh, who would come uh, and uh, right every wrong and address every sin. And we were to prepare our hearts for Him. And in Him the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And this is the, the person of Christ. Israel was facing a, a, a time when they needed comfort. And throughout its history, uh, the Church of Christ uh, has experienced times of great trial and other times of even great and intense persecution. And over and over again, uh, the Church of God has turned to the Word of God for comfort uh, in such places as Isaiah chapter 40, uh, but also 
in what we're going to look at this morning in John chapter 10. If you want to turn over there, what we are going to, to study this morning in John chapter 10 is one of the most comforting passages in all of Scripture. And it is one of the most comforting passages in the entire Bible because it proclaims one of the most comforting truths in all of Christian theology. Last week, as we were here in John 10, we, we saw that it, it takes place at the Feast of Dedication. And that uh, during that feast, uh, Jesus w- was walking in the temple, specifically in the uh, Solomon's uh, portico or Solomon's colonnade. Uh, and there were a, a group of Jews who encircled him or surrounded him, and they began to, to question him. And they said, tell us plainly, why do you hold us in suspense? Speak plainly, are you the Christ? And Jesus answered them and explained that he had already spoken plainly. He had already proclaimed who he was and what he came to do, and that they had not believed. And then he did something that only God can do. He explained their unbelief. Because you are not among my sheep. That's why you don't hear my voice. You don't obey and you don't follow. And in verse 27, that, that is how Jesus described his true sheep. Because my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. The implication was that those who were coming and questioning him at this point in time, they weren't doing any of those things. And Jesus is going to to move beyond speaking plainly about unbelief as he did there. And he's going to shift gears and speak plainly about salvation. He contrasted those who were not his sheep with his sheep. And now he's going to, in verses 28 through 30, he's going to unfold what is in store for those who do belong to him. For those who are his sheep, what will take place? Jesus is going to speak plainly about salvation and his words will bring comfort to our hearts in the middle of uncertain times. And there are circumstances and current events that sometimes overwhelm us personally and culturally, that those circumstances and and current events cause us to sometimes lose sight of who Christ is and what he has done. Sometimes those circumstances and current events lead us to to question what he has promised or even his ability to, to follow through on what he has promised, right? Will he really be faithful to do what he has promised to do? And so we need the verses that we are going to look at this morning. We need these truths to refresh our spirits. We need these truths to revive our hearts. We need to write these truths upon our minds and to review them over and over again. Because what Jesus is going to proclaim in these verses, He's going to explain what is promised to His people in salvation. And then he's going to to back up those promises and he's going to explain how he is able to fulfill the promises that he makes. That's what we're going to see beginning in verse 28. Verse 28 is going to show us what Jesus promises to his people. You read along with me there. Jesus says, I give them, speaking of his sheep, 
those who hear His voice and follow Him, I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of My hand. There's really three promises here that Jesus unfolds and emphasizes. Number one, that that He gives eternal life. When Jesus speaks of eternal life, uh, he, he speaks of it here as if He is constantly, continually giving it. Now, in, in John's Gospel, eternal life has really two dimensions to it. Now, there is a, a quality of life uh, that, that accompanies the eternal life that Jesus gives. And we, we've seen this throughout John's Gospel. There is regeneration. Uh, the Spirit of God working in the soul of man, making us into a new creation, giving us a, a new heart, a new nature transforming our affections, releasing us from from the bondage of sin, enabling us to to worship Christ and follow Him as we should. This was even spoken of back in verse 10 of John 10, when Jesus said, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, and I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He's speaking of an eternal life that leads to a a quality of life in the here and now. But then eternal life also points to a quantity of life. Jesus offers you life after this life. Life without end. Resurrection from the dead where we get to enjoy future fellowship with Him for eternity in heaven. Jesus is saying this is what is promised to His people. Then there's a a second promise closely associated with it, that they will not perish. Christ promises that that none of His sheep, none of those that He is caring for, will perish. Death is no longer a threat to the sheep of the Good Shepherd. Yes, we will die in this life, but death has lost its sting because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's what Jesus is proclaiming here. That He gives His sheep eternal life, that they will not perish. And then there's a a third promise. That that no one will snatch them away. Uh, And this is a a promise that that doubles as a a prediction. That no one will will snatch a single one of Christ's sheep away from Him. And that's a big promise. Uh, and, And the word snatch here has the implication of seizing by violence. The same word that was used back in chapter 10, verse 12. Speaking of the hired hand uh, who sees the the wolf coming. Verse 12 says, He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. So in that context, the, the hired hand runs for his life and sacrifices the sheep, but Jesus is saying, As the good shepherd, he will not do that. He stands and fights. He defends his sheep. And no wolf will ever be able to snatch a single one of his sheep away from him. But also, understand the implication. This doesn't mean that we have uh, complete and absolute peace in our lives. The implication is there will be attacks upon us as the sheep of Christ. There will be those who seek to come after us. But all of their attempts to snatch us away from Christ will be unsuccessful. They will never succeed towards their goal. 
There was a, a time a while back when I was, I was playing a, a game uh, with my, my two sons. They were growing bored with uh, the Legos that we were building. Uh, and so I decided to, to take a little Lego piece and uh, to switch it back and forth in my hands uh, and then hold out my hands like this. And they would try and guess which hand the Lego was in. Uh, and they did this for a time, and then they grew bored with that, as young boys do. Uh, and it turned into a wrestling match uh, to try and take the Lego uh, out of my hand. Okay? And, and you can imagine how that went. Right? I have this Lego piece, and I, I close this Lego piece in my hand. And for a while, I was moving it around and trying to keep it away from it. But then I just said, okay, sure, go for it. Try and take the Lego piece out of my hand. Uh, and, and try, as they might, with their little four-year-old muscles, uh, they were unable to wrestle that Lego piece out of my hand. They were unsuccessful. And that is what, what Jesus is saying here. That there will be attempts against His sheep, but they will never succeed. They will always fail. And this doctrine... That none of Christ's people will be snatched away from Him. It's also often referred to as the perseverance of the saints. But, but some have argued that if we, if we know that we are safe and firm in Christ's hand, and, and no one can remove us from His hand, is that then an encouragement for us to sin? Right? If we are always going to be in His hand no matter what happens, does that mean we, can, we are free to go and do whatever we would like to do? Well, the Apostle Paul asks and answers that question in Romans. The Apostle Paul is really good at that. What's the, what's the objection here? Let me, let me address that. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So I think it's, uh, it's important as we look at this concept of the security of the believer, of what are the, the promises of salvation, that we also distinguish what it does not mean. So I would quote the, the theologian John Murray here to, to help bring some additional clarity. It says, in order to place the doctrine of perseverance in proper light, we need to know what it is not. It does not mean that everyone who professes faith in Christ and who is accepted as a believer in the fellowship of the saints, is secure for eternity and may entertain the assurance of eternal salvation. does not mean uh, anybody who has ever claimed to be a Christian actually is one and is safe and secure in the hand of Christ. If you turn back just a little bit in John's Gospel to John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. Jesus Himself sets the, the standard and, and the measurement of, of those who are truly among His sheep. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed Him, If you abide in My Word, you are truly My disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The, the key component there and the measurement of, of genuine faith in Christ is always do you abide in what He has commanded. That's going to come up over and over again uh, later on in John's Gospel uh, as Jesus is, is spending His last evening with the disciples. He says, If you truly love Me, then keep My commandments. Uh, and again, of thinking that through of our love for Christ is demonstrated in our obedience to Him. 
can also flip it around. Our disobedience to Christ shows what? Uh, a lack of affection for Him. And so uh, another quote from, from John Murray to clarifying all of this. He says, It is not true that the believer is secure however much he may fall into sin and unfaithfulness. Why is this not true? It is not true because it sets up an impossible combination. It is true that a believer sins and he may fall into grievous sin and backslide for lengthy periods. But it is also true that a believer cannot abandon himself to sin. That he cannot come under the dominion of sin. He cannot be guilty of certain kinds of unfaithfulness. And therefore, uh, it is utterly wrong to say that a believer is secure quite irrespective of his subsequent life of sin and unfaithfulness. And earlier I mentioned that distinction of eternal life comes uh, and has a dimension of a quality of life and then a quantity of life. Uh, And those two go together. Right? The, the quality of life that uh, God makes us into a new creation and then we live out uh, a new affections and experience a greater quality of life because it's in harmony with God, that will always accompany uh, the, the quantity of life and eternal life. And you can't have one without the other. Uh, and you're not going to have, in essence, justification without sanctification. The, the two are inseparable. And so this, this perseverance of the saints, it really harkens back to what we talked about last week, right? Uh, th- this balance between man's responsibility and God's sovereignty, right? And, and this, uh, Jesus is emphasizing God's sovereignty, but over and over again in Scripture, we have commands that are given to us as believers. What are we called to do? Not let go and let God, but we are commanded to persevere, uh, to remain faithful to Christ until the end. Uh, and we can do that with comfort and confidence and assurance knowing that we are in His hand and no one is going to snatch us out. So this isn't a, I can just relax and Jesus has everything covered. This is a no. Now I am free to do what I am called and commanded to do. That is true liberty as we see in Scripture. And that is the, the emphasis here. The sovereignty of God does not negate our responsibility. But Jesus makes these promises to those who are hearing and obeying and following Him and then in verses 29 and 30, Jesus is going to, to explain the theological truths that support the, the promises that he just made. Now, if, you, if you look with me at the, those verses, 29 and 30. Jesus says, My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And so Jesus is explaining. He just made this claim that no one is going to be able to snatch his sheep out of his hand. And he explains this. He says, well, uh, the one who gave them to me, God the Father, is the first theological truth. The Father is greater than all. Right? Pretty basic theology there. The omnipotence of God. He is far greater than any other person or being in the universe. Then a second theological truth that's close on the heels. If God is uh, greater than all and stronger than all, then that means by implication, no one is able to wrestle the sheep out of God's hand. 
He who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And this sounds a lot like verse 28, but verse 28 was speaking about a prediction of no one would do this. The emphasis here is that no one is even able to do this. This is an explanation of why it's a guarantee that no one will snatch us away from Christ, because no one is even capable of doing so. And there is no person, there is no demonic power in the universe that is able to forcibly snatch away a Christian from the hands of God. If you you keep your finger here in John, let's, let's go back to Isaiah, what we have been reading this month. Go to Isaiah chapter 43. Beginning in verse 10, the prophet writes this. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed. When there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And I am God. Also, henceforth, I am He. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? The, the, the theology that we see in the New Testament is always just an echo of the theology that is taught in the Old Testament. Scriptures are in complete harmony. And Jesus makes clear the impossibility of someone overthrowing the sovereignty of God. But then he makes one more claim in verse 30. He says, Jesus, or this third theological truth, he says, I and the Father are one. Which which is quite the statement. It's going to get him into some really big trouble because as you see in verse 31, the Jewish response to this is that they immediately pick up stones to, to stone him. And we'll look at that in, in coming weeks. Jesus is speaking plainly here. But, but this is a, a theological truth that he is unfolding. That Jesus and God the Father are one. And there's a, there's a nuance here additionally in, uh, in the Greek text uh, where uh, the rather than a the, the, the masculine pronoun being used, it's a neuter pronoun. So what the, the implication of that is, is Jesus is saying that he and the Father are one, but he's, he's saying that in a way uh, that doesn't uh, cause his own personhood within the Trinity to disappear. Uh, it, it allows Jesus to say that he is equal in essence with God, but also distinct as a person within the Trinity. Uh, And so, uh, again, echoing the truth that we saw back at the very beginning of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And so the the theological truths that Jesus is presenting here, that God the, the Father is greater than all, No one is even capable of wrestling uh, anyone out of God's hand. And then Jesus and the Father are one. If you can can think back to my wrestling match with my sons over that Lego piece, 
They, they were unsuccessful in wrestling it out of my hands when I had one hand on it. And Jesus is necessarily saying, now there's two hands. Now, now it's God the Father and Jesus are safely securing His sheep. And no one is going to take them away. And no one is going to, to snatch them forcibly from the hands of the triune God. But again, some have, have questioned this. Uh, and it's a good question, right? Here it speaks of uh, a forcible snatching and no one being capable of taking uh, anyone out of God's hand. But a question among some theologians is, is, can a believer choose to remove himself from God's hand? It's a good question, right? But a couple of implications with that, and I would just ask first, why would a sheep desire to leave his shepherd? Why would somebody who is genuinely hearing and obeying and following Christ say, I don't want to follow you as a good shepherd anymore? Right? Something is inconsistent there. But secondly, at the, at the hypothetical question, but also the, the language and logic here is, is very clear. And because it is speaking about uh, a complete inability for any person or power to remove a believer from God's hand. And again, if Jesus is saying that God is greater than all, and no one is capable of this, the implication that a, a believer can remove themselves out of God's hand would mean what? That they have to be greater than God. It's an unspoken assumption within that, right? But that's not what I, I see here in the text. The emphasis upon the greatness and goodness and sovereignty of God. And Jesus has, in these verses, once again spoken plainly. He outlines the security and comfort that his sheep will enjoy because they are in his hands. And even when we are experiencing trials, even when we are experiencing persecutions in this life, we are safe in the hands of him and of God the Father. But there's also this other lingering implication here. Again, if this is what is true for those who are uh, believers, those who belong to Christ as his sheep, what is true for those who are not among the sheep of Christ? Right? They, they have another assurance and another uh, promise here. Uh, and, and the promise uh, is that they will have no assurance and, and no comfort. Right? If comfort and assurance come by being in the hand of Christ because you are among his flock. If you are not among his flock, then there is no comfort and no assurance. And, and so the, the oft-repeated invitation in John's gospel still rings forth here. Look to Christ in faith. Trust in him and, and the promises laid out here can be your experience. Now, and even as we, as we read in Philippians 3... Right? This is the, the Apostle Paul's testimony, right? All of, the, all of the things that he used to boast about, all of his accomplishments in Judaism, says they are, they are now rubbish to me. And he puts no confidence in the flesh. Uh, that is the, 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 the truth of the gospel right there. That is what we are called to do. To trust in Christ alone is to abandon the hope that we have of saving ourselves. 
uh, and to look to him in faith and acknowledge, I am lost and I want to be brought into your sheepfold. And I need you to save and rescue me. We are called to, to look to Jesus in faith. And when we trust in him rather than trusting in ourselves, we are united with him in his life and death and resurrection and placed firmly in his hand. And this is, a, this is a very powerful word of comfort from Jesus in these verses. He promises His people eternal life and security in His hand. And He points to the power which guarantees those promises. But I will draw your attention to, to one more thing this morning. And if you, if you go back to verse 22, the very beginning of this section... As we have studied John's Gospel, we have repeatedly seen a connection between uh, the setting of this festival, uh, and that's how John's Gospel is organized. Each of the the major uh, portions take place at a feast or a festival in the Jewish tradition, uh, and John is is highlighting and emphasizing the, the background of this Jewish festival and how Jesus fulfills this festival. Uh, the meaning of what is being celebrated points to Christ. And that has been the pattern throughout John's Gospel. And in in verse 22 in chapter 10, we we see that this takes place at the Feast of Dedication, which we now refer to as the Feast of Hanukkah. But what do we really know about Hanukkah? Probably the extent is maybe a menorah, uh, maybe a dreidel, but th- the background to this festival highlights what Jesus is saying here. Because again, you have to ask, why is Jesus saying this and emphasizing this right here and right now? And I want to give you the background to Hanukkah. When it's going to be a little bit of history, so if you enjoy history, buckle up. When Alexander the Great died in, in 323 B.C., he had this kingdom uh, that went from uh, Macedonia uh, in the modern Balkans uh, all the way down to Egypt and all the way to India. An absolutely massive kingdom. But he died at the age of 33. And his kingdom was divided into four parts, uh, given to four uh, of his generals. Uh, and uh, in one general, uh, Lysimachus, uh, was given Asia Minor. Another general, Cassander, was given Macedonia and Greece. Uh, another general, Seleucus, was given Syria. And a final general, Ptolemy, was given Egypt. And uh, these two last two generals, uh, each of these kingdoms became basically a hereditary monarchy and was passed on from generation to generation. Uh, And the last two of those generals uh, became uh, kingdoms known as the the Ptolemies in Egypt and the Seleucids. And they fought over the land of Israel for the next 150 years. In 175, the, the king of the Seleucid Empire, Antiochus IV, came to power. And he became known as, uh, when you give yourself a nickname, it's usually going to be good. He called himself Antiochus Epiphanes, meaning God manifest. But uh, the the Jews gave him a different nickname. Uh, They called him, uh, rather than Epiphanes, they called him Epimenes, meaning moonstruck or the mad. And, And this nickname came about because of his 
megalomaniacal tendencies. So in, in 170, he decided that he was going to go down and he was going to, to conquer and attack Egypt. And he was uh, successful uh, in Egypt. And on his way back home to Syria, he stopped by Jerusalem and he raided the temple. Seizing a large amount of gold and silver that he used to finance the war that he just fought. And two years later, he returned to Jerusalem and he plundered and burned the city and established a fortress in Jerusalem. And he greatly persecuted the Jews. And the books known as the first and second Maccabees, uh, they, they are a part of what's known as the apocryphal literature. Uh, and so they're, they're viewed as the Roman, by the Roman Catholic Church as being inspired, but the, the Protestant tradition does not uh, view that in that way, which is a much bigger discussion there. But I would, I would encourage you to, to view those books as historical books, not as inspired books. But it's helpful in, in understanding. I'm going to read portions of first Maccabees to you that describe what took place uh, under Antiochus Epiphanes. It says, Deceitfully he spoke peaceable words to them, and they believed him. But he suddenly fell upon the city, speaking of Jerusalem, and dealt it a severe blow and destroyed many people of Israel. He plundered the city, burned it with fire, tore down its houses and its surrounding walls. And they took the women and children and seized the livestock. And then they fortified the city of David with a great strong wall and strong towers, and it became their citadel. And they stationed there a sinful people, men who were renegades, and these strengthened their position. They stored up arms and food, and collecting the spoils of Jerusalem, they stored them there and became a great menace. For the citadel became an ambush against the sanctuary, an evil adversary of Israel at all times. And on every side of the sanctuary, they shed innocent blood. They even defiled the sanctuary. Because of them, the residents of Jerusalem fled. And she became a dwelling of strangers. And she became strange to her offspring. And her children forsook her. And her sanctuary became desolate like a desert. Her feasts were turned into mourning, her Sabbaths into a reproach, and her honor into contempt. Her dishonor now grew as great as her glory. Her exaltation was turned into mourning. And then the king wrote to his whole kingdom that they should all be one people. And he's emphasizing this because when Alexander the Great's kingdom uh, split into four, all four of those kingdoms had a, a Greek or Hellenistic culture. And it was constantly at odds with uh, Jewish culture. And so this sounds great and loving and compassionate from the king, right? We should all just be one culture. But whose culture would that probably be? Hellenistic or Greek culture. So the king wrote to his whole kingdom that they should all be one people and that they should all give up their particular customs. All the Gentiles accepted the command of the king. And many even from Israel gladly adopted his religion, and they sacrificed to idols and profaned the Sabbath. And the king sent messengers to Jerusalem and to the towns of Judah, and he directed them to follow customs strange to the land, to forbid burnt offerings and sacrifices and drink offerings in the sanctuary, to profane Sabbaths and festivals, and to defile the sanctuary and the priests, to build altars and sacred precincts and shrines for idols, to sacrifice swine and other unclean animals, and to leave their sons uncircumcised. 
They were to make themselves abominable by every unclean and profane, by everything unclean and profane, so that they would forget the law and change all the ordinances. He added, and whoever does not obey the command of the king shall die. And in such words, he wrote to his whole kingdom and he appointed inspectors over all the people and commanded the towns of Judah to offer sacrifice town by town. And many of the people, everyone who forsook the law, joined them and they did evil in the land and they drove Israel into hiding in every place of refuge they had. Now on the 15th day of Kislev, in the 145th year, they erected a desolating sacrilege on the altar of burnt offering. This is 167 B.C. It was prophesied by the prophet Daniel, what was known as the abomination of desolation. Since they, they came into the, the temple in Jerusalem and Antiochus sacrificed a pig uh, on the altar. Again, Hellenistic culture comes into conflict with Hebrew culture. Because to the Hebrews, a pig is an unclean animal. And he came and he sacrificed it on their altar. Intentionally. As a stumbling block. And they built altars in the surrounding towns of Judah. And they offered incense at the doors of the houses and in the streets. And the books of the law that they found, they tore to pieces and burned with fire. And anyone found possessing the book of the covenant or anyone who adhered to the law was condemned to death by the decree of the king. And that's how uh, the dreidel came about during the, the, this Feast of Hanukkah because those Jews who refused to, to get rid of their, the Scriptures, uh, they would be studying the Scriptures in their homes. And when one of those inspectors came and knocked on the door, they would quickly put away the scrolls uh, and they would pull out the dreidels and act like they were playing a game. But they also built altars in the surrounding towns and offered incense Sorry, I lost my place. And they kept using violence against Israel and against those who were found month after month in the towns. And on the 25th day of the month, they offered sacrifice on the altar that was on top of the altar of burnt offering. And according to the decree, they put to death the women who had their children circumcised. So if you want to maintain your Jewish identity, you're going to be killed. And their families were also put to death, and those who circumcised them. But many in Israel stood firm and were resolved in their hearts not to eat unclean food. And they chose to die rather than to be defiled by food or to profane the holy covenant. And they did die. Very great wrath came upon Israel. So that's the, that's the setting. But then enters this priest, a man named Mattathias, who lived in a, a small town. He had five sons. They were all deeply grieved over the, over the conditions of their people, of the city of Jerusalem. And when the, the king's officers came to Mattathias's town to enforce the, the, the mandated sacrifices, this is what took place. And the king's officers spoke to Mattathias as follows. You are a leader, honored and great in this town, and supported by sons and brothers. Now, be the first to come and do what the king commands, as all the Gentiles and the people of Judah and those that are left in Jerusalem have done. Then you and your sons will be numbered among the friends of the king, 
and you and your sons will be honored with silver and gold and many gifts. They approach Mattathias because he would be influential. Right? If Mattathias comes and, and offers sacrifice and goes along with what uh, Antiochus is saying, everybody else would follow. But Mattathias answered and said in a loud voice, Even if all the nations that live under the rule of the king obey him uh, and have chosen to obey his commandments, uh, and every one of them abandoning the religion of their ancestors, I and my sons and my brothers will continue to live by the covenant of our ancestors. And right after this, a Jewish man came to offer up uh, the mandated sacrifice on the, the pagan altar. Right? The whole town's gathered together. Uh, they say, hey, Mattathias, why don't you go first? He says, no, I'm not going to do that. Another man comes up to offer the, the sacrifice. And Mattathias was, was filled with zeal uh, in a scene that's reminiscent of uh, Numbers 25 and Phineas, uh, the, the son of uh, Eliezer, uh, addressing idolatry and immorality there. Mattathias, the, the priest, uh, rises up and he kills this Jewish man who's going to, to offer sacrifice and he kills uh, the king's uh, officer. And he tore down the altar. And that was the beginning of what became known as the Maccabean Revolt, which lasted from 166 B.C. to 143 B.C. And Mattathias uh, dies, but the, the, the revolution was in essence led by one of his five sons, Judas Maccabeus, also known as Judas the Hammer. That's a cool nickname. Uh, but but his, Mattathias' five sons... Uh, in essence, led this revolt, and the, and the Jews practiced guerrilla warfare against the Seleucid Empire. And in 164, the Maccabeans recaptured Jerusalem. So, three years after uh, the abomination of desolation, they recaptured Jerusalem, and they rededicate the temple to be used to, to worship the Lord. Uh, and the people celebrated this rededication of the temple for eight days. Uh, and it was decreed that a similar eight-day feast of dedication, Hanukkah, should be held every single year. Uh, and the, the, the miracle of Hanukkah is the supply of olive oil that they found in uh, the temple at that point in time uh, was really only enough to last for two days, but it lasted for eight days. Uh, that's a, a part of the, the reason for that uh, aspect of the feast. Uh, and so, again, think about this. You and I are not necessarily as familiar with, with the background uh, to the Feast of Hanukkah, right? Uh, but if you were a, a Jew during the time of Christ uh, and you're celebrating this festival, what would you immediately know in the back of your mind? All of that context, right? What, what's on your minds when we celebrate July 4th, right? You, you, un, you have this understanding of your nation's history. And the Jews would have heard and understood all of that. And some key connections. Now, Antiochus Epiphanes is a type and a foreshadowing of the Antichrist. Now, that is made clear in the New Testament. And his persecution of the Jews uh, during that time uh, is a foreshadowing uh, of the persecution that the Antichrist is going to, to pour out upon believers during the time of the tribulation. Now, I, I firmly believe that the, the church will be raptured prior to the tribulation, but there will be many uh, believers who are here on the earth facing that persecution, who come to faith in Christ uh, after the church is brought into heaven. 
And I think that this passage is a special message of hope to them. Because the whole background of Antiochus Epiphanes foreshadows and points to the Antichrist, whom they will be uh, in the middle of experiencing, uh, and the tribulation and persecution. And, and what is Jesus saying in this background of this feast, where God so- we're celebrating God's sovereign hand and delivering Israel in the past, and Jesus is saying, if you are in my hand, no one's going to remove you. Antiochus Epiphanes couldn't remove the Jews from the hands of God. The Antichrist is going to be unsuccessful in uh, removing any single one of Christ's sheep out of his hand. I think this is is a word of hope for those uh, in the future. But if it's a word of hope for those in even more desperate times in the future, should it not also be a word of hope to us right here and right now? Right? Praise the Lord, we are not experiencing the type of persecution that I read out. But we are not experiencing that. But these are uncertain times. Uh, and we are searching for hope. We are searching for comfort. We are, we are grasping to know who is in charge. Where do we stand? Will Jesus fulfill his promises to us? And what does he say here? A resounding yes. No one will remove a single one of his sheep from his hand. Not a single one. And so we can rejoice and take comfort at the same sovereign Lord who has been faithful throughout the history of Israel will also care for and guide and protect us. Does that mean that we have a get out of persecution free pass? No. I wish. But that's not the promise here. The promise is in the middle of difficult times, where do we still stand? In the hand of Christ. And no one can take us away from Him. Why? Because no one is greater. No one is even capable of taking us away from Him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.